Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Sean Pattenden. The name Jacques Peretti might be familiar to many listeners. He's an investigative journalist and filmmaker who's made eye-catching TV series on big themes like The Men Who Made Us Fat, The Real Michael Jackson and The Super Rich and Us. But Jack, we know you as the Guardian Guide's former club columnist who hated clubbing. We know you, Sean, as well from this uh, former life. <laughs> but there was a story in his family that makes even these global trends seem insignificant. In the few last months of the Second World War, his mother, Alina Peretti, along with her mother and sister, had been one of 13,000 non-Jewish Poles who were sent to Auschwitz. She was 13 years old, and the experience was to cast a shadow over the rest of her life. Alina escaped Auschwitz, graduating as an architect from university in Poland, and worked in Senegal, England, France and Switzerland. She came to England in the late 1960s when she started a family. She's now 90 years old and suffering from dementia. In the book, Little Bird, Jacques and his mother piece together her story while they still have time. Jacques and Alina, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> Jacques, you are the only son of Alina and Peter Peretti. You'd heard stories about your mother's experiences as a teenager in Auschwitz while you were growing up. Why write a book? Well, it just seemed uh, such a good time to do it uh, for a number of reasons. My mum had been just diagnosed with dementia and actually my kids said it's just a really good opportunity to record all those memories of what happened in the war that unbelievable journey and I'd heard all fragments of the story since I was a child but never really pieced them together and then of course Covid came along and it gave me a chance to spend some dedicated time with my mum putting it all together. So what did you know before you wrote the book? What are the stories that you were told as a child and what did you then discover? Yeah, I'd heard, you know, just bits and you know, just strange stories of wolves in the forest, of uh, SS officers coming to a cafe and shooting a man playing the piano. These Just these sort of really strange little, you know, snippets. And they were all tantalising, really, because I thought never been able to put them together into one story. And when when I started to do that, I realised that this was much bigger, that it was almost this sort of, without being too pretentious, this kind mm. of Zhivago-esque odyssey mm. across Europe, you know, that my mum had taken and never really, she'd never really talked a lot about, about the whole journey and never really occurred to her to do that. Although when we started writing it, you'd said, I knew that you'd wanted to do a book. I wanted, yes, always. I wanted to do it myself, but I didn't have a courage. I didn't know how to do it, to write it. When I started to write, it didn't look right. So, you know, I abandoned it. But it was such a lot, you know, the material was enormous. And then I didn't want it to be not accurate. What happened, it was on such varied levels. You know, it was very dramatic, but I don't know how my brother felt when he was in a camp after the war. We didn't talk about it because it was such a memory that you didn't particularly want it to carry on. Well, Jacques, can you tell us a little bit about the family background? Alina's mother, Olga, was a wealthy woman living in the Polish countryside. She and Alina didn't get on, right? Yeah, so she she was a Russian aristocrat, mm. and she'd married this sort of very suave, handsome man that she met at a bar in Paris, who was my <laughs> grandfather, Michael. Um, but the irony was that, of course, 
he had a sort of double life. So she thought his name was Barshak. Actually, he was his real name was Sabansky. He was also an aristocrat, and they'd been Mensheviks in the the uh, the Russian Revolution. So they had sort of played a really key role in actually the sort of the the other side of the Bolsheviks. You know, so he had this double life. And the other thing was that he was actually working for the underground resistance. The the, pole, the AK, they were called, which were which had been kind of key in fighting the in being anti-fascists in the early thirties in Poland. So he was already leading this duplicitous double life, and that his wife was totally unaware of. Initially, they thought they couldn't have children, so they adopted uh, a boy, Pavel, who was the oldest. And then, as was often the case, that once they adopted a child, they suddenly had children of their own, and they had three in quick succession. Um, they had uh, Juta, um, Kajik, and then finally my mum. I mean, the book is very honest. There is incredible detail. There's also a lot of harrowing stories about the ghetto in Poland and many other aspects of the war. But what comes through is how honest Alina is and her joy to be with her mother, the excitement. <laughs> What I had read as fairly terrifying conditions. I mean, Jack, you talked about that this is an odyssey. They at one point go from country to country. There are sub-zero temperatures, the people smuggler, there are rubles sewn into the lining of a coat. And Alina at points is excited. There is something about this is thrilling for a child and that's what makes it so incredible to read. I mean, that's what my mum would say over and over again. I would say, God, this must have been so traumatic. And she'd say... No, I was, you know, I was an 11-year-old girl. This was, I was with my mother. I had her attention. And it was an adventure, you know, I think. Obviously well, things were happening. Things were happening around us. It wasn't sort of Dao sitting in a the house. There was, you know, those things were happening. And action, and also that you were occupied made a difference because mm-hmm. you were never sure what the reaction is going to be from the occupants. Mm-hmm. Or what would happen day to day. I mean, literally, yeah. one day to the next, you'd be in a different place and Yes, you know, because to they moved you according to their own prediction. So you never knew what was going to happen. Now, the tarot cards were a guiding light for Olga, your mother, Alina. What does this say about the different coping mechanisms we have when faced with the irrationality of war? I found that a really interesting detail. What, the tarot cards? Because my mother was Russian and, you know, her knowledge, she used to put the cards for everything and predict the future. And she always tried to keep them. And from her prediction, she was more optimistic than the situation we were in because she was telling us that it's going to be fine. I was saying, Mummy, are we going to be killed? She said, not at the moment. (laughs) Goodness. There is no death around us from the gods, you know, Mm -hmm. because, look, all reds around, Care and Caro, and death is peak, is the black one, you know. Mm -hmm. But look, look, yourself, you know, there's no black cards around us, (laughs) only red. So, you know, I I was very reassured. Well, I think I think your point, Sean, that it's a coping mechanism is spot on because it's in a way it's as valid a way of making decisions as any other. Mm, you know, mm. And it gave her, I think, it gave my grandmother a confidence 
to make these outrageous decisions that everyone else just thought defied comprehension to go back into Nazi-occupied Poland to find her children. Let's talk about that. So from a Siberian camp, your father somehow managed to get money to release you, but your mother decides to go up to Sweden, round about a bit, but then back to Poland to find her children. And at every point, people were saying no. How did that feel for you, Alina? Well, you know, I didn't have anything to say because my mother had her sons in Poland and, you know, she was very concerned about them. She wanted to be together with them. So that was the, the priority for her. She said, we have to be together for good and for bad. I think you, you said to me in the book, you, you felt very, you know, you felt very angry because you'd managed to get to safety in Sweden and suddenly she's taking you back into danger. Well, I was always in a conflict with my mother and I was always critical of her and I never agreed what she wanted to do because I was always sort of adoring my father and sort of, in a way, my mother was in a second place. Did writing the book with Jacques help you understand also, you mentioned your father, his motivations as part of the Polish resistance and why he was so absent in your childhood? Yes, yes, of course, you know, he had his own position in life and he followed it, you know, and it was right what he was doing. I mean, there was a price to pay, you know. I think that, again, as as a parent, uh, you know, the idea that the nation, that the, the destiny of Poland is, you put that first in front of your family, being with your family, even in a situation like war, is kind of hard to comprehend. And yet, clearly, that's what he believed, you know. I mean, that's a charitable thing to say, and it kind of sounds noble. But then he also, of course, you know, had his own problems with his marriage and clearly, you know, the beliefs of his separation from his family dovetailed quite neatly for him as well. So, Absolutely. So the little bird of the title refers to the sterilisation programme, which was wrought on pubescent girls in the death camps. Alina was injected supposedly, and I quote, against the diseases of the camp and the doctor called her little bird. Now, Alina, you say in the book that you looked forward to seeing him. I know this was regular until you found out that's what he called all the girls and only later did you realise actually what they were trying to do. Well, because people, the prisoners, people who they were in the camps, they told horrible stories. They even multiplied the situation which we were in. You know, they were saying, minute when they inject you, you, you will be not healthy, you will have a problem with your mind or... You will, you know, uh, all sorts of stories were being said apart from that, that injection were giving to us. Mm, that's interesting. So the injections were almost, it was kind of a relief when you got them and you didn't feel any, I mean, did, you feel, did you feel side effects at all? Absolutely. Whatever I felt wasn't significant because I was expecting worse. Mm. And then you had this man, this handsome doctor, you know, and saying, you know, you're my little bird, and that's kind of tremendously poignant, isn't it? Yes, it was, in a way, encouraging, you know, that there is a sympathetic mind around you, and that it gave you this very fragile security. 
because really, honestly, during the war, you didn't feel at all secure. But being in a camp, you felt worse. You saw death around every day because, you know, you have seen people being shot in a camp because somebody done something wrong and the German, they just got a gun and they shot him. And it sometimes seems from the book more arbitrary than that. The Germans yeah. simply sometimes had to make up the numbers and just if you're in the wrong place, you got shot. For me, Sean, the reason that the Little Bird title really did resonate, for me anyways, as a title, was because my mum in the Warsaw Ghetto had been put in front of a firing squad and uh, obviously she saw... Well, she, Not in the ghetto. No, sorry, in the insurrection. Sorry. In the insurrection. Yeah. Tell us and about that. So there was a Jewish ghetto in '43, and basically when... Mm-hmm. The Jewish ghetto rose up against the Nazis, yes, which the insurrection. Extreme, you know, my mum mm. remembers seeing this. You know, she was having a piano lesson. Oh, it was extraordinary! You know, I because we start we were trying to have a normal life, so I was playing the piano, and I had a teacher and doing me a lesson, and uh, then at the t- time she was playing Chopin, and. Uh, I saw this ghetto burning, and I thought, my God, how it is. People are being burned, and here is the piano music. We are playing Chopin. As a child, I thought it wasn't right. And the little bird is something that you see, don't you, when you are taken out of one of the um, underground places where you're hiding. Is it a cellar? And there's a firing squad. And at this point, it seems that notes from the top, the memo comes through and the regime is changing. Can you tell us about how you were spared from the firing squad? Well, it was actually good luck because generally the insurrection was considered for the Germans uh, as a, well, sort of riot. Well, it was a riot. Uh, and to start with, when the German took the area, to start with, they usually shot people. And when there was agreement signed with the International Sort of Commission, that they recognized Warsaw insurrection as a sort of regular fight. They were not allowed. Well, they could do what they wanted, but then instruction came that they don't, on the beginning of the insurrection, they shot everybody who they took over. And when this international commission or whoever decided that is a regular army, then they were not shooting people. That was the thing that, you know, even though, of, of course, you know, there was a convention that teenagers, essentially teenagers with guns who were fighting this insurrection mm. were, were to be considered soldiers. That didn't mean that the Nazis regarded them as soldiers. This, As you said, Sean, this moment that my mum is put in front of the firing mm. squad is literally mm. the very moment where the top, the command in Warsaw mm. are debating within themselves. You know, Hitler said kill everything that's moving. That was his line on the insurrection. But these officers are saying, we're about to lose the war. You know, we don't want to be brought before the Geneva Convention for crimes against humanity. And that very debate is literally being had in front of my mum as she stands in a firing squad. They kill the people opposite. They kill, I have seen people being killed opposite 
with machine gun falling down with blood yeah, yeah. all over the places, yeah. you know. And that was the reality. That was the reality. So I didn't hope to live. I didn't. So it was, in a way, a miracle. And even to this day, sometimes when I wake up, I think it was a miracle. I can understand why. The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We're proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. So you and your mother and your sister Juta, but she is separate from you at this point, you are in Auschwitz in 1944 and this is the time when the Germans kind of know this is all over and they are trying to erase a lot of what has been going on within Auschwitz and you're kind of um, commandeered to, to help do this. The camp is liberated, but you find yourselves almost unable to leave and you see a Russian soldier who tells you it's freedom and there is a sort of stasis. Can you tell us, Alina how you felt? Well, I just couldn't believe it, in a way, because the German just disappeared, mm-hmm. and the camp was empty. The guard disappeared, and on the end of the entrance to the stalag, I saw somebody with a gun, and I started to walk towards him, and that was a Russian soldier. To change came so smoothly. The German just disappeared and the Russian just came. But you didn't really even know he, he said Svoboda to you, didn't he? Would you? Yeah. Uh, uh, I know I speak Russian because my mother was Russian. So when I approached to him and I look, look at him and he said to me, Dioshka, Svoboda. He said, girl, there is freedom for you. But you didn't really know what that meant. You're free, free from what, you know, because, of, you know, this was the thing, freedom to, mm. you know, leave the camp. They didn't want to leave because my mum's mum said the Russians could be worse. You know, they could kill us all. So they stayed in the camp. This is the incredible thing. No, because my mother was a Russian who uh, was rich people during the revolution. She had uh, uh, brothers who they were in a Tsar's guard yeah. and they suffered from the Bolsheviks and from the Soviet, you know, so she had she a fear. The communists. So, uh, yeah, yeah. She was f- feared of the communism. My feel was uh, 
feeling was quite different. Well, she realized also that, you know, there is some freedom for her. But she was frightened. And I think the, the incredible thing was that a lot of the German guards who'd been in Auschwitz were being rounded up in the woods, you know, and being dragged back into the camp by the Russians. And were, these were the new prisoners, and they were in the cuts next to people like my mom. You know, it's just bizarre. After the freedom, we had to stay in a camp because we didn't have anywhere to go. Because, look, our house in Warsaw was destroyed. The second house, it was in Poland, but after the war, it became Russia. That was area which was called Wołyn. And my house, of my parents' house, was there. And so we lost this, and we lost the accommodation, I mean the apartment in Warsaw. So we didn't have anywhere to go. And Warsaw was destroyed anyway, so there was no houses which they could give it to you. So you had to be in this communal, horrible places. Alina, did you ever feel being interviewed by your son was uh, (laughs) a difficult process? No, because I wanted to share it with somebody Mm -hmm. who, because I wanted to write it myself, but I wasn't able to do it. I was trying to say it to the magnaphone and it didn't work because, uh, you know, I talked to him a hell of a lot. You know, all the time, I think, poor child, you know, <laughs> who had to live with a, with a mother which was obsessed with the war stories. You know, I, I'm so sorry, but I had to tell it to somebody because my husband wasn't patient enough to <laughs> listen to it. So thanks God that Jacques did and that mm-hmm. he actually make record of it. I'm ever so grateful to him because I felt that it's my duty, it's my duty, because I lost a lot of family. Mm. And my my brother, who was in the camp, and and another one which was killed, and, you know, all the uh, family I lost, I owe that to them, to write. Uh, And thanks God that Jack did it. It 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 was funny because actually doing it, I did... At certain points, forget that I was sort of talking to my mom, and I would, you know, treat her as if she was just another interviewee in a documentary or podcast or something. And I'd be saying, you know, but you know, when you went into that cellar, how did you really feel? And I actually had to step back for a minute and just think, just be a human being here, you know, acknowledge that this is traumatic stuff and it's triggering. You know, it's really difficult for my mom to have to retell these stories. I mean, even what we're doing now, you know, we've done publicity and so on for the book, but I often do feel a twinge of guilt, more than a twinge of guilt, for making my mum go through these stories. So I was very, very pleased that she does feel that it was a process worth doing. And as we can all hear, Alina, your memory, your long-term memory, is absolutely pin-sharp. And sometimes it seems that, you know, almost that sort of the trauma of memory and the repression actually can bring it back sharper than before. We know that you suffer from dementia, but 
it is absolutely amazingly impressive how much you can be eloquent about what happened to you and process that. Does it come easy? Do these memories, you know, do they feel like they were just a few weeks ago? Well, I think it does come easy because I think about it every day. When I go to bed, the images which I have is from this time. Very often, sometimes I'm trying to think about the garden and, you know, present day, but these memories are even stronger now than they were 30 years ago. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I mean, they know, we know, you know, from work, obviously, work to do with dementia, that there is this sort of substitution of, you know, the short-term mm-hmm. memory files erasing themselves. And, these, and as you said, these longer-term memories get sharper, more vivid, I don't know. I mean, I should ask my mum this, but it's it's almost as though what's it like to be living in those memories, living in the past? Because you are literally living in those moments. You know, she feels it acutely when you... I, I can't help it. It's just part of my life, you know. Older I am, more vivid they become. It's extraordinary that I remember more the time of Warsaw insurrection and before and all the trauma more than when I left Poland and I live in Switzerland yeah. with the beautiful landscape around and and a good uh, job and beautiful accommodation, you know. It's sort of unbelievable. It's much stronger. But maybe because it's very hard to for anything to compete with those, with those events. You know? I, mean, Could, those I events. think probably that's what it is because mm. it was much stronger. In your mind is it's a fight for space in your yeah, long-term that's memory right, and that's the war right. wins, doesn't it? That's right. You say in the book that Elena is one of the most generous and least bitter humans I have ever met. Mm. Everything you say, Elena, is extra. After the war, this is all extra, that life is joyful and actually that you had a good life, you've had great jobs, you've got a family and that this extra is something that you've really celebrated after having such a difficult time. This is a prize. I got a prize from God or whoever it was. I got uh, uh, all my uh, life after the war, the travelling, going to university, finishing it, studying, becoming an architect, building houses for people who they needed it, you know, satisfactory job, people happy saying, did you design this house? Yes, we are so happy in it. You know, to having such a satisfactory job and to survive, you know, isn't it a gift? Fantastic gift. But that, is, that was what was amazing to me when I talked to you about it, because you would always talk about the war in a very positive way, never in a negative or sour way. You know, my mom went back to Germany after the war and, you know, her friends, German friends, she wanted to understand the country better. Mm-hmm. And absolutely no bitterness whatsoever. And would always say, as you said, that what it did was give her a kind of mindset and attitude to face every problem, which is that, she says, from that firing, you know, when I was put in front of that firing squad, I was effectively dead. I died the moment I was put there. I was sure I was going to die. And now every second I live after that is going to be extra and therefore something to be savoured and, you know, to, to, to take to, to its fullest. And, you know, that's 
genuine. You know, that's a really genuine thing that I see every day with my mum. You know, the lesson that's learned that we can apply to ourselves through the pandemic is that trauma is to be embraced. You know, that life, which is go over the cliff willingly embracing the situation how whatever it is and just live every moment to the fullest because we have to and you know i think that does really it's amazing having the book coming out and obviously it's about the war but all of us having gone through a pandemic it does really really resonate with people it seems to have sort of touched a nerve i think because we've all had some taste of what that was like you know and how we all deal with trauma individually and collectively. Exactly. Um, Jacques, did uncovering your mum's story make you feel kinship with the European Jews and other minorities who were murdered in the Holocaust? In that sense, have you found a sort of family as such? It's incredible. I mean, my, it's very funny, actually, because my mum and dad moved in the late 60s to Stanmore, which is in North London, and it's a predominantly Jewish area. It was an area that a lot of... East End Jews moved to Edgware, Stanmore in the, actually started in the 40s, you know, it's put Exodus from East, East End of London. So I've always been kind of immersed in Jewish culture. I'm a sort of, you know, I've got Jewish friends who say, oh, you're like honorary Jew, you know, one of us, <laughs> because yeah. of, you know, your background. But it's, it's funny that in spite of that, I didn't really know the ins and outs, the detail of how the Jewish community suffered both in the 30s prior to the Second World War through the Pilsudski regime, which was anti-Semitic, started concentration camps, not extermination camps, but put Jews in in concentration camps in the 30s. Then after the war, you know, when Jews were blamed, you know, by the Polish people for this stain on their history, as though somehow they'd brought this this shame upon Poland. Pogroms continued after the war. I got a far better understanding of of what had happened. And I think the sort of generosity that liberal-minded Jews show towards, you know, people who've been through the camp, like my mum, they'll all tell you the same story. They'll all have, very many of them will have a very similar outlook on life, you know, as a result of it. For me, the most remarkable story, not the most, is an insult to my mum but you know her brother Kajik you know he was a child combatant in the insurrection 14 years old he shoots a boy the only person he kills in the whole thing goes up and picks up his documents and then after the war he goes and visits the family mm. the German family who of the boy that he shot and they know who he is when he comes in before he's even said a word they know he's the the boy that killed their only son and you know they stayed that family stayed in touch with Kajik for the next 20 years and they treated him as though he was the son that they'd lost and I thought that story was so human and in a way showed that the the victims were universal this affected the German people as well they suffered they lost and that's why that story was so moving for me really. It's very powerful and I think there's something about what was on the mantelpiece when, is it the mother yeah, yeah. passed away? Just the two pictures. So she had the picture of her of her son, uh, Jonas Peter, who died, and then the picture of Kajik, who had killed her son. And those were the two pictures she had on her on her mantelpiece. And he, you know, he stayed in touch with her for 20, until the day she died. 
Well, the book is extraordinary. It's a unique story and it is beautifully written. Will it inform what you do now professionally, do you think? That's a really good question, yeah. Um, it's very weird going back to treating things in a, in a cold, analytical way, actually. It's funny, which is I'm not saying I always do that, but, you know, when you do things about sort of global capitalism, you know, the evils of inequality, it's, a, it's all quite food industry, whatever it might be. And you know, I actually, funnily enough, publishers were talking about you know, monetizing my poor fabulous trauma forever because my dad's got an equally unbelievable oh, okay. He's Corsican, <laughs> you know, because Corsican background. My mum, dad were both immigrants, really, you know, effectively in England. And and I do think, you know, I think it's just good for everyone. You know, Guy Garvey does this thing. Do you remember this thing he did, which was about recording, try to get a project together about people just recording their family, and that's sort of, and that's become such a big thing, not just with him, but this idea of us all recording our families. Because Sean, you should do it. You know, record your family. You know, record these because everyone has these incredible. It's just it's you know, Auschwitz is obviously dramatic, of course, but only on the surface. Everyone's lives are unbelievable, and they need to be recorded. So that's what I feel people should do, really. And everybody's lives are should not be typed they should not be stereotyped and this is what why this book is so honest and so good you know you can feel happiness <laughs> crawling through the ice uh, at midnight not knowing where you are you can feel happiness because you're with your mum jacques and alina thank you so much for joining us on the podcast thank you no thank you sean it's been a pleasure you. thank you thank you very much Little Bird, How My Mother Escaped Death and Found Our Family is available now and it's published by Hodder and Stoughton. Listeners, thank you for listening. Remember, there's a new edition of The Bunker every morning except Fridays when Oh God, What Now is out, so please do subscribe. I'll be back on Saturday as part of The Culture Bunker, our pop culture review show. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented... By Sean Pattenden. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Yelna Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold, and me, Alex Reese. Music by Jade Bailey. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>